giant robots smashing into other giant robots. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. I'm Ben. I'm here today with my co-host Derek. How are you this week? I am doing well. How are you? I'm uh, I'm decent. Yeah, yeah. Got some stuff done this week and some things to talk about, and uh, yeah, feeling all right. Cool. First things first, were you guys impacted by the AWS apocalypse? Uh, not really, actually. It was pretty minor. So, like, on FormKeep, we store CSV exports on S3. Yeah. So, for a little while, you couldn't export CSV. Well, you could try to export CSVs, but you wouldn't get the download link. Mm-hmm. And I believe that was about it, actually. Nice. Yeah. How about you? So, we do... I mean, we're fully on AWS, so obviously, when that statuses start coming out that AWS is in trouble, it's always, like, a stressful day. Yeah. We similarly store all our image uploads and exports and things like that in S3, and even our tracking snippet. So the, the JavaScript that people install on their website, we have in an, in an S3 bucket with CloudFront in front of it. Mm-hmm. So anyone who like already had the cache or who had a warm cache in CloudFront, it was okay. But So I don't actually have solid numbers on it, but I think a lot of our JavaScript tracking was intermittently offline during that period. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so like our EC2 instances were not affected from what we could tell. So that was that was good. We hit the hit the lottery, I guess, cuz poor uh, like I saw Honey Badger we used for our error monitoring. Mm-hmm. They were hit really hard. Like a few of their instances were just like rebooted or taken offline or something. So oh, man. They were they were down hard for a little while. Felt bad for them. Yeah, I mean, we're on we're on AWS too just uh through buffered through Heroku, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I didn't notice any actual like system downtime. It was just that S3 thing for for us. Did you happen to see the the postmortem from Amazon? I did. Yes, uh, it's kind of amazing. So I think this is a this is a flaw in their system. It's obviously not any human's fault, you know. Mm-hmm. But the fact that one engineer with the slip of a finger has the ability to cause this kind of havoc is pretty mind blowing. Yeah, like, totally. Uh, right. So so if you happen to have not read that thing, it turns out this was basically a typo. Like someone yeah. hit like an extra digit in like taking something offline and then took, you know, 10x the things he wanted to offline, he or she. Yep. And chaos ensued. And so I think that part of that was like, A, that was possible. And B, the ramifications of that ended up being worse than expected. Yeah. So it's like, oh, turns out if enough of those go down, then it cascades in this crazy way. And like, t- totally agree that like the first thing is a fixable flaw where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, we just, we should have safeguards in place because people will make these mistakes Yep. And, and even this person was even operating off like a playbook, like a standard checklist kind of thing, and just like happened yeah. to type a, a type, hit the thing wrong. But that second thing, I wonder if that's a thing you can actually fix. Like those cascading failures where like something happens and then like it just goes create, like things fail in surprising ways. It just seems like there's too much complexity in the world. You're never going to really eliminate all those. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we've experienced is, and they talk about this in their postmortem, they're like, we've grown a crazy amount over the last few years and they literally have not rebooted at a wide scale large parts of their infrastructure for a few years they right. said so mm-hmm. they didn't know what the failure scenario was when these instances would come offline and that that is becoming you know increasingly difficult for us to test obviously we're nowhere near their scale but just simulating what would happen if we make this small change you know we can attempt to simulate it in staging but mm-hmm. we don't have a multi terabyte database with 30,000 queries per second hitting it, you know? <laughs> so I can only imagine how difficult it is for them to actually simulate uh, production, but I think it's it's an important exercise to do. I don't know how much effort it would take for them to do it. I mean, it'd probably be nearly impossible, but um, 
it just gets me thinking every time things like this happen. What can we do at our small scale to make sure that a slip of a finger can't like hose the whole system? You yeah, know? yeah. Are you are you familiar with Netflix's Simeon Army? Uh, I've heard of it, but like Chaos Monkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I believe this runs in production where they have a bot that will at random kill instances (laughs) um, or like degrade their performance. Yeah. And I guess that would have exposed this flaw earlier, right? Like their thing where they hadn't rebooted a thing for a couple of years and now they have 10x the traffic. And so they didn't realize how long it would take. Um, Maybe that would have helped in this case. Right. I mean, maybe it would have just triggered this happening and... uh... Yeah, I don't know what would have happened like if if they had a chaos monkey in production and it actually triggered this. Like, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, uh, I, I think the goal is you never get to quite hear where it would have caused this much issue, right? Like you're right. Just running it all the time, and so it's like, yeah. oh, we or assume that these things are going to go down regularly at yeah. uh, at, at, at intervals. Yeah, I kind of I love that idea. I think that's such an interesting way of handling this. I do too. Yeah, it's like let's just manually cause a little bit of mess and make sure that the system remains not fragile. Yeah, it's kind of like a it's like an integration test, like the highest level integration test possible where like mm-hmm. some random event like completely unrelated to the inner logic of your code causes a problem. What happens, you know, mm-hmm. are you guys yeah. doing 30,000 queries a second? Was that your example? At times we are. Yeah, Wow, that's bananas. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't have visibility into that really great until we started getting Prometheus instrumented on our servers so I, I we probably could have pulled that out of a new relic somewhere but there's like so many uh so many different ways to view slice and dice data in new relic that i probably haven't seen most of it you know yep but yeah it's it's pretty crazy i was surprised myself when i saw that yeah is that just one giant box running the database or are there a bunch of like copies of it around yeah it's it's primarily one giant box we have a failover instance which is a close following replica and mm-hmm. then we've we've just started spinning up we have one additional read replica to start shifting read load onto. Mm. And we're like experimenting with getting Rails set up to be able to point some reads at it. Experimenting mm. with the octopus gem. I don't know if you've ever like Mm-mm. worked with any of these kinds of gems. But yeah, that one's been a trip because it it seems to want to inject its tentacles into uh, many parts of active record. <laughs> so mm, we've already, yeah. we deployed it once and some of our unicorn server processes were not able to boot because we were like missing some kind of initialization. So huh. that was surprising. And so there's been a few like surprises like that, but we're going to try to spread some of our really heavy read stuff off onto read replicas, which I think a lot of apps probably would have done much sooner than we're, than we're doing. But mm. I think that's, that's going to be, an important way to scale our read load. We're, we're a primarily read heavy use case. So mm, that's nice. Yeah. That's much, yep. that, that's easier than the, the opposite. Yeah, totally. So what's new in your world this week? Uh, let's see. So I submitted an attendee talk for microconf. Nice. I yeah. thought about submitting a, an attendee talk for growth. And then I was like, yeah. maybe that's a little tacky. <laughs> You know? uh, I don't know. I think you could have, but yeah. Yeah, it's t- two different audiences. Yeah. So for th- for those who don't know, you're you're speaking at the beginner edition. Yeah, or what are they calling it? Starter. starter. Yep. Starter edition. Yeah. If something yeah. if something amazing had come to mind, I probably would have done it anyway because it is a different audience. But yeah. Yeah. I was like, one, yeah. working on one talk is probably going to be plenty plenty of work. That's the thing. Like, yeah, you don't want to stress yourself out too much with trying to do multiple talks. Yeah. Yeah, so so for those who don't know, Microconf is a conference for self-funded startups. It's been going for a couple of years now. They do a, a Europe edition and a U.S. edition. 
And they've recently, this year, they're trying something new where they're splitting out uh, between kind of the starter folks, people who are just getting started, maybe just have an idea or brand new into the software world, and then the growth edition, which is for later stage companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I submitted an attendee talk for the growth edition. And the working title is Transforming Customer Input into Killer Features. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, and it, it kind of goes beyond customer input even, but that's kind of the most important input, I think. Mm. We have our own ideas about what we should build. Customers are constantly giving us feature requests. So customer-driven is kind of like the going mantra right now. It's kind of in vogue. But what does it really mean to be customer-driven? How do you how do you take all these feature requests and prevent yourself from devolving into a, a junk drawer of features? How do you do that? You gotta have a well, vision, right? You, well, that's part of it. Yeah. The talk is not fully formed yet, but I kind <laughs> yeah. of have I have an idea about our framework and I wanna kind of distill it down. I think it's gonna be a good exercise anyways to mm-hmm. kind of write down what our framework is at Drip and yeah, kind of the ideas behind balancing, you know, sticking to your own vision versus listening to what your customers are asking for and mm-hmm. getting to the root of problems. So mm. cool. I'll be distilling that down into 10 minutes. And uh, yeah, should be a good time. Nice. And those are voted on, right? That's like everyone submits it and then the attendees vote on it and the top and get picked. That's right. Yep. So that's the other thing. I may not actually be speaking. We will see if the if the people want to hear about this. Yep. So Cool. Yeah. We'll make sure not to use your podcast to brigade the voting. And- oh, of course not. <laughs> vote, vote for me. <laughs> are the talks, are they, I forget, are they anonymous or are there people's names on them during the voting? I think there's people's names. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. At least there have been in, the, in years past. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good idea. I've seen people, I have a lot of rants about conferences in general, um, yeah. but I've seen people do like anonymous talk selection as a way of like eliminating bias. Yeah. And I get that goal as being a good idea, but the factoring in someone's, who the person is, I think is really important. I Yeah. I think it's an important ingredient. Like I, I want to hear about scaling from someone who scaled, but I don't want to hear about it from someone who has read about it. <laughs> yeah, you know? totally. And, and like there are people where I would want to see them talk even if I didn't know what their topic was. Sure. Like there are people like, I know this is a, this person's a great entertaining speaker. They're going to have interesting things. They've had an interesting experience. They're going to have good things to say. Yeah. Uh, who cares what the topic is? So to me, the, the speaker is actually the, is the more important part than the topic. Yeah, I agree. So I've started in on another project. I usually try to have like one of my own projects going at any given time, in addition to facilitating my team and, mm-hmm. and helping move along other projects. So I've started in on my own. And this one is this one is a little bit different than the live segments feature where I kind of like built this separate subsystem that was going to improve performance of this thing. And then I gradually rolled it out and dropped it in to replace the existing constructs. This one is kind of like a big refactoring effort. So it's like getting into reworking a lot of the internals of our integration system. Hmm. And it's the idea is that it's going to make it a lot easier for us to build our side of integrations with, you know, outside apps that want to send data into Drip mm-hmm. and also improve the way that you configure um, pushing data out of Drip into other platforms. Hmm. So right now we've basically what it, the gist of it is that we've when you go into Drip and you're configuring an automation rule, we give you a single dropdown to pick a trigger and we give you single drop down to pick an action. You can have multiple triggers and multiple actions, obviously. But in this drop down list, we try to encompass all the different types of triggers that are coming in. Mm-hmm. And most of those are drip specific, like subscribing to a campaign, completing a campaign, applying a tag, whatever. Mm-hmm. But 
as we get more and more integrations who are sending their own events in, we want to be able to scope the triggers by which provider. So drip will be one of the providers listed there mm-hmm. and we'll have our own drip specific triggers. And then, you know, we have an integration with Shopify. So Shopify sends us 12 different events. So we want to be able to scope our triggers by, you know, first choose the provider and then choose the provider specific event that you mm-hmm. want to trigger based off of. And it's going to be a lot more scalable than trying to shove everything into this one global list of possible triggers. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we have like business development efforts constantly ongoing, trying to get more and more people to integrate with Drip, which is great. And we're getting a lot of interest, but we want to give people the best tooling to build like a really killer integration. So nice. So you're doing outbound efforts then to get people to integrate with you? Yeah, we are. Which, which, you know, when when we were small, we would try to do some of that. But when you don't have a lot of clout, you don't have a lot of users, it's hard to get companies to totally to do it, you know, so that's something that has gradually been changing. You know, now that we're in the lead pages fold, they have a bit more, bit more clout. Cool. So. I'd like to take a quick moment to tell you about today's sponsor, FreshBooks. So I'm guessing that a lot of you in the audience are freelancers. I think that is a worthy and noble place to be in the world. And it appeals. You know, you learn to write code or design things or ship stuff when you're working for somebody else. And you say, you know what? I'm sick of working for this person, the man, the woman, and I would like to go strike out on my own. My lance will be free. I will freelance. That must have come from medieval times, right? You're just like a freelance. That makes a lot of sense. That's weird how that word has stuck around. So you're a freelancer. You've got your suit of armor. You've got a sword and a horse, I assume. And you're like, so I'm out here on the battlegrounds, knocking people off horses with my lance. And I need to invoice my vassal lord for the time and so you're thinking hey it's 1239 the year not the time and uh invoices are hard to make well guess what in 2017 invoices are no longer hard to make because we got fresh books so fresh books is a cloud-based accounting software tool so how are you gonna do these invoices answer fresh books how are you gonna track when someone has paid your invoice Answer, FreshBooks. So you've done your nightly duties, that's with a K, and you need to invoice somebody. So you reach for FreshBooks, and here's what's going to happen. First of all, your invoice is going to look professional. It's going to gut out in less than 30 seconds because you you can't invoice the time you spend invoicing. So all that time is wasted. It's unpaid time, and we hate that. So you're only going to spend 30 seconds whipping up a nice-looking invoice. You're going to let people pay you online, which is great because they can't invoice you for the time they spend trying to come up with a bank transfer to pay you. All this grit in the system of the economy is just gone because it's going to be fast and beautiful. And you can even do some tracking. When your client sees the invoice, you'll know. You'll know they've seen it. It'll be like you have invoice ESP. So you got to check that out. You're a freelancer. You want to get paid. You want fresh books. Now, they are offering a 30-day free trial to all of you. If you want to claim it, you can go to freshbooks.com slash giantrobots and enter giantrobots in the how did you hear about us section, and then they will know that I sent you. Actually, so I, I, we put out two features, speaking of user input, uh, that people have been asking for for a while. 
uh, and we finally enabled them. One is uh, referral widget. So people would frequently email us and say, hey, if I send people here, like I, I have friends that are also learning Ruby or I'm going to this Ruby meetup or whatever, like is there a way I can share Upcase with people and, and get something for it? And mm. so now the answer is yes. So we, rather than build it ourselves, we used a company called Referral Sasquatch. Okay. Which yeah. is kind of like a JavaScript-y drop-in, now you have a referral widget thing. Yep. And they integrate with Stripe. So the way the, the thing that we're doing, don't hold me to this, but as of right now, it's if you refer someone, you get 50% off your month's bill and they do as well. Ah. So it's like a two-way thing. That number might change, um, but that's what it is right now. And so they integrate with Stripe directly to handle like adding the coupons to people. Nice. Um, yeah. So you have to be, in order to be an affiliate, you really kind of have to be an existing customer, right? You guys yes. don't do cash payouts. Yeah. Right. So it, yeah, it is a, it's, it's a referral thing instead of an affiliate thing. Um, okay. At least as of right sense. now, I think eventually we could, using the same tool, get uh, an affiliate thing going. Yeah. Um, but as of today, that's what it is. That's cool. So you just rolled that out? Uh, yeah, it's live. Okay. All right. So no, no like numbers yet on... Not yet. Or anything like that. We've shared okay. it sort of quietly with a handful of people just to like watch it work in production and make sure everything looks correct. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to talk about it more, more loudly. Nice. Yeah. It's that last part I suck at, by the way. <laughs> speaking loudly? <laughs> uh, it's not speaking loudly. It's like that last, like, okay, n- like now tell everyone about it. And it's like, yeah, that's boring. We already built the thing, you know, it's out. <laughs> like once I push the thing to production, I'm kind of like mentally, I'm just like, now it's done. And it's like, actually, yeah. no, you're not done. Now the work begins for the marketing people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. You need some of those. But, but I, had, yeah. I had an interesting experience as we were looking at providers for this tool. Uh-huh. Um, so we ended up going with a company called Referral Sasquatch, um, which has been fine. But another, the, the, our initial choice during our research was this company called Ambassador. Yeah. And we use Ambassador. Oh, you do? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting. Um, so when I reached out to them, their pricing model, the lowest level thing is ten thousand dollars a year paid up front wow and we're like well like this is a test for us like we're interested in trying this but we're not going to pay 10 grand up front to test this out and they're like all right have a good life (laughs) so yeah i think to be honest i think we got in with them much earlier when they had not gone so far up market Uh uh-huh and yeah i think that's from what i understand that's been their strategy is just to kind of go further up market so yeah well, it's it's interesting. Like, I get it. That makes sense. And it's it was interesting for me to bump into a, a like a piece of software that was doing that so str- like so aggressively. Yeah, I found it kind of an, inter- an interesting experience. I expected them when we said like, no, no, we need like you know some sort of month to month thing up front for them to be like, okay, fine. Yeah. But they were just like, nope, we're not doing that anymore. Which I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. To like, you know who your target customer is, yep. and rather than quibble with people who are too far outside of your optimal zone you just kind of like make it clear up front right yep yeah and, and they're like clearly have like a high touch sales process going on yep. and so you need a certain deal size to make that work and so yeah. you, you basically can't afford to work with people that are not in that yeah in that place totally totally so anyway upcase is now ten thousand dollars a year paid up front as well <laughs> okay yeah um wait so for upcase you went no 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 that was that was a joke Oh, that was. A I'm joke. saying okay. we changed our prices to be 10k. <laughs> oh, got it, got it. But now we have straight a huge, over my head <laughs> a sales team, and we'll buy you steak dinners and stuff. There, there you go. <laughs> yeah, great t-shirts for everyone. So that was one feature that we got asked about a lot. The other was we implemented subscription pausing. Um, okay. So uh, we have a lot of like, in, like Upcase is firmly like a B to C 
mm-hmm. thing. So it's a lot of individual people, and individual people get busy, or they stop working on Ruby for a time. And so we have a lot of people that would email us and be like, hey, I, I'm not working on Ruby right now. Can I pause my subscription as opposed to cancel it? Hmm. And it's kind of a funny distinction. I think it's kind of, it's, it actually ends up being mostly just a mental distinction, because pausing and canceling both just mean you're not paying right now, but yeah. you might pay in the future. So when you go to the cancellation page now, or actually as of you know later we're deploying this, there will be two options. One is just like cancel totally. The other is a 90-day pause, basically. Mm. So we'll save all your progress and hang on to things. And in 90 days, we will email you a couple days ahead of time and say, hey, we're about to restart your subscription. Um, just so you know, it's coming up. And then we'll just reactivate you automatically. Interesting. Yeah. So is that they're paused and obviously they're not paying anything during that time, right? Mm-hmm. So the motivation to choose pause is that they don't lose their progress. So that- they don't lose their progress with canceling either. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think it really is mostly a, m- a mental distinction. I, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but people were asking for this because they felt like cancellation was too final or something. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. It, I'm thinking about this more now. And like, I wish I had dug into this a little bit more when people asked for it. It's like, what is it about pausing that you prefer? Yeah. But yeah. That makes me think of this interesting thing we considered doing. I think with Aweber, I believe you have the ability to put your account into like pause mode essentially, but you're still paying like a couple of bucks a month to keep your account around, Mm -hmm. which I always thought that was an interesting way to do it. And that could potentially be a way to like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it'd be worth it, but to like monetize keeping someone's progress around like, Hey, if you just pay it, you know, go down to five bucks a month, we'll keep your progress. You can come back anytime. Mm -hmm. And then when you actually want to start resume again, then get back on your normal plan. We never end up doing anything like that for Drip. And similarly, we, for the most part, keep your data around, um, unless, of course, you request that we delete it or something. We keep your data around so that if you cancel and come back, your account, like hmm. most of your stuff's still there. Yep. We reserve the right to delete at any time, sure. you know, if we decide to like garbage collect our database or something like that. But I like that idea. Yeah. This is something I've run into with FormKeep where we delete your data when you cancel. Mm hmm. And it was basically because I didn't want to end up in that situation where like we're we're hosting your data for free effectively because some people yeah. will come in and like get a million submissions and then cancel, right? And so that's an interesting idea, like kind of like a archival mode or something. Yep. Yep. Hmm. Okay. I'm gonna think about that. Yeah, something to stick in your hat for consideration. Totally. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I fixed a bug this week as well. Did you? Yep. On FormKeep, this one's sort of. It's unfortunate. Uh, so basically, on our pricing grid, we have several different like start a trial buttons, and it turns out that no matter which button you clicked, we put you on the lowest plan. Ah, uh, yep. So that's not true anymore. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and that's great. <laughs> that's a good. Now, thing. when someone self selects a higher plan, what are they? What features are they getting for for choosing a higher plan? Uh, so you're getting more forms is the main thing. And as of recently, I added uh, priority support to the upper tiers. Okay. And the top tier has uh, an SLA. Okay. Okay. That SLA is an experiment because basically no one signs up for the top tier at this point. Mm. And so I was like, if I throw this on here, I can watch and see if anyone signs up for it and just see if this has any pull with people. And then uh, backfill, basically. So uh, I was just like, includes SLA. It's like, which SLA? Well, we'll figure that out in a moment. Uh, since no <laughs> one's ever signed up for this, let's see if just anyone gets there. And at that point, we're like, okay, we need to figure out what the SLA is exactly. Nice. Yeah, so it's sort of a lightweight thing. Yeah. It's not like something that an enterprise would love to have, and they would just like gladly like, yeah, give me that. 
Hopefully. Just, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the turns out that experiment doesn't work if all of your buttons go to the base plan. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Whoops. Yeah. Yeah, those are rough. I mean, and, and it's the kind of thing that, like, people very likely didn't notice that they were being put on right, the plan exactly. that they didn't select. So it's Prob- not like a bug that, like, is going to get reported right away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, anyway, that's fixed. Okay. Well, good. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, mostly my week. Cool. So I had a... I was thinking about something based on something we talked about uh, the last episode. So we started off the episode talking about kind of this idea that, you know, when you buy coffee from Starbucks, uh, you may be under the impression that you're buying lower quality coffee than like, say, from an artisanal coffee shop. Or, you know, if you're drinking boxed wine, there's this perception that it's lower quality than Mm. carefully crafted boutique winery, right? Uh But under a blind test, in many cases, there's likely not much of a quality difference, right? Mm -hmm. So that got me thinking about like, the way user perception needs to be managed. And, you know, so thinking about like, picture you're a winemaker, right? And you're, Mm. you're crafting this wine, and you're trying to build a really high quality product. It's got to be pretty frustrating to know that like, probably a big driver of your sales is the design of your label, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I tried to start comparing this to, to the things we build in software. And like, the fact that our marketing website and our headline potentially, you know, impacts sales of the product is super true but also frustrating right Hmm. and Mm -hmm. and even inside the the app so we recently we recently shipped something that basically dramatically improved the perceived loading time of the main dashboard in drip Hmm. and it's been something that's been on our list for a long time it it was especially apparent for larger accounts as most things go with slow queries you know Mm -hmm. there was like this one query that was running and on large accounts it would take a while and uh, before someone saw the data appear on their dashboard. So we started, we just like implemented some more aggressive caching and made sure that we always displayed the page instantaneously and then fetched any slow data uh, async. And that one small change, based on things I've heard, I think people are feeling like Drip is just so much faster now mm. in general. So it's like these little perceptional things. Like we didn't actually build a new feature that's going to help that person do their job better. We just like made a small improvement to something seemingly superficial. Hmm. And yet it's created a lot of like positive feelings about the product in general. Yeah. And I I think probably similar sentiment is coming out of some of the redesigns we're doing where just the app looks a little bit fresher. It looks more modern. Mm -hmm. You know, I suspect that things like that could, you know, cause someone to decide to buy drip. Even though it's not, you know, has nothing to do with the the powerful features we're offering and and all this good stuff. So it just got me thinking about like, how do we, as we're prioritizing our roadmap, how do we prioritize those things that are pretty intangible and pretty superficial, but also speak to the perception of our users, you know? Yeah, it's to me, the bigger, it's like the the topic is like exploiting cognitive biases Mm -hmm. (laughs) to make more money, basically. That's, That's the most cynical way of saying that. Right. But it's like we probably, as humans, overweight visual appearance and speed for yep. web apps, let's say. And so if you invest heavily in those, you can probably get more leverage on that work than other things. Yeah, exactly. When I look at products, things, I get most excited about the things that are innovative new features. Like how can we, how can we make our customers more powerful, more, you know, able to accomplish their tasks in a more efficient way, whatever. Yeah. 
And I think I've recognized in myself, I have a tendency, I can, you know, tend to weight the roadmap too far in that direction. So I think it's just a realization, like, and this is, this is nothing new. This is basically a, the entire marketing industry is based off of this, right? Hmm. Like they, we run split tests, we test headlines, we test copy. And all of that is just the outside things that sell the product. And it's all speaking to the cognitive biases of potential customers, right? Mm-hmm. So hmm. yeah, I just, just was, was thinking about that this week. Yeah, I think there could be an interesting. Um, something like it could be an interesting talk. Yeah, which is like let's look at cognitive biases that are present in people and where we can get a bigger bang for the buck um, yep. from the stuff that we're doing. Yep, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I think like for instance, adding a feature to a big list of features doesn't feel like a big change to people. Right. Right. They're like, okay, it does four hundred and three things, and now it does four hundred and six things. Like, who cares? It's yep. like. All right, it used to take two and a half seconds to load the dashboard, and now it takes one point one seconds. You're like, oh wow, this is so snappy. I love it. Yep. It's because like people hate waiting so much, and so we're like, we're gonna we're gonna reward speediness mentally quite a bit. Right. And that visual thing, I mean, that matters. Like, I don't know. Like, who likes using ugly software? Oh yeah. It's that's it, it might be a bias where it's like we we might be overweighting it, but I think it I think it matters that your software looks good. Yeah, your user's perception is reality. So if they're perceiving a well-designed product to be a better product in general, then, you know, you have to honor that. And totally. and I totally recognize it myself when I'm choosing software, if if it looks like it's straight out of the 90s, I'm going to assume that it's not good software. For sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know? Totally. Yeah, it's like look at a few things and pick the one that has the best marketing site and then go. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's t- to be fair, when you say like well-designed, that goes beyond aesthetics, right? Like if mm-hmm. it's if it's beautiful, but then like the information hierarchy is terrible, or like the the things aren't where you expect them to be, that's that's not enough, right? And I think like it, it's interesting to juxtapose this against like some of the quote unquote enterprise software that people have to deal with. Like mm-hmm. a lot of our our top tier competitors, you look at their user interface, and it is you know atrocious, mm-hmm. and that's always been a, a quandary for me. Like how the heck are these companies so successful? when their user interface is so terrible. And I think it's, I think it comes down to who's making the buying decision, you know? Mm. And in those cases, it's like you're selling into a large organization. There's someone responsible for purchasing it. And that's probably not the person who's actually going to be using it. Mm. So that person is maybe looking at checklists of features and, you know, you have 407 features instead of 406. So we're going to choose you. Right. So I guess that's how things can go wrong. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. With that, if you're purely looking at it from an analytical perspective and you choose the one with the most features, then, you know, it kind of it incentivizes just adding more features and not actually crafting good user experience. Yeah. I wonder if age plays into this, too, where it's like if the interface looks like something from 12 years ago, that feels more familiar hmm. to like if 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 I liked the Internet 10 years ago and I wish it had stopped moving and changing. <laughs> Uh, I'm kids gonna, these days yeah exactly their responsive design <laughs> exactly all these what's where are my drop shadows yeah i miss my, i miss my drop shadows oh man so yeah that's just that's just been a little thought experiment i've been doing like i like that a lot this feels like it fits the theme of things i like in the world which are like high leverage things where it's like pricing mm-hmm. for example it's like can have such a big impact on your revenue and mm-hmm. the idea that there's like a, a more of these, like a handful of things where it's like, put your focus on these type of things. Yep. I really, I like this. I want to talk about this more. 
Yeah, I think we should. And I, I'd like to flesh out the idea more. I was re- literally just the other day, just you know, pondering this and like, yeah, mm-hmm. I think this is. I think this is important because we always talk about like. We want to come up with the next innovative feature. We want to stay ahead in the market. And I think that's definitely important. But I think in any given work cycle, a chunk of our work should be looking for these high leverage areas where we can improve the perceived yep. value of the product, even if it's not something super concrete. Do you know what I think another one is of these? What? Is responding to support requests really fast. Hmm. Yeah. I have a hunch that's like kind of another one of those touch points where it's like that feels like this is a higher quality thing just yep. because you got back to me quickly yep i see that often like in comment threads when people are like you know commenting on drip versus other products or, or just any products in general a lot of times people will highlight like and their support is super fast mm-hmm. and it's not something i'm necessarily thinking about all the time yep you know as i'm in product land but yeah it, it totally makes a difference Cool. I have a story. Uh, we're getting a little long now, so I won't I won't share it this week. But maybe next week we'll pick this up again. And I have a story about a, a company that kind of explicitly went after these type of things and Ooh. to good effect. Can't wait to hear it. Stay tuned in for next week. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Alrighty. Uh, well, it's good talking to you. Yeah, you too, man. Today's show was produced and edited by an ice cream sundae with sprinkles. Tom Top Obarski. <laughs> If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to giantrobots.fm slash 231. Thanks for listening.